0: Hi, this is Brandon and welcome to the Crucible of Thought podcast. I'm here to share things that interest me and things that I think the Lord has brought to my attention. And today's episode is titled, Rejecting a Jonah Spirit. Perhaps one of the most beloved children's stories in the Old Testament is that of Jonah, who famously was swallowed by a great fish and spit out again three days later. Of course, much of the story is decidedly deeper and darker. God did not let Jonah rest until he relented to do the will of the Lord, to warn the wicked city of Nineveh of their coming doom. But Jonah reacted very badly to the situation. As the story unfolds over four chapters, Jonah didn't want to proclaim the word he'd been given, so he hopped onto a ship and tried to flee. God sent a great storm and caused the crew to sacrifice Jonah to save themselves, and God sent a great fish to swallow him. After three days, he repented, and God told him again to go warn Nineveh. This time he obeyed, and Nineveh promptly repented and was spared. But Jonah was angry at God for his mercy and spent a lot of time pouting in the desert, but God corrected Jonah's understanding. Well, you see, Jonah's reticence to warn Nineveh was understandable. In his cultural and timely context, Nineveh represented the worst of the Assyrians who had long tormented his people. In his mind, they deserve to die, and apparently they also even deserve destruction in the eyes of the Lord, who proclaimed judgment on them before the story even starts. So here are some of the main parts of the story in the New American Standard Translation. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry out against it, because their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, So he went down to Joppa, found a ship that was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and boarded it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men became extremely afraid of the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord designated a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish for three days and three nights." Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days' walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. And he cried out and said, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, removed his robe from himself, covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the dust. When God saw their deeds that they were... Turned from their evil way, then God relented of the disaster which he had declared he would bring on them. So he did not do it. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. Then he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my own country? Therefore, in anticipation of this, I fled to Tarshish, since I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in mercy, and one who relents of disaster. And God replied, Should I not also have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left, as well as many animals? Okay, well that's the portions of the biblical story, and Jonah appears a few more times in the Bible outside the book that bears his name. Uh, For one, uh, in the 15th year of Amaziah, the Son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned for forty-one years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not abandon all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, into which he misled Israel. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Araba. In accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amatei, the prophet, who was from Gath Hepher? For the Lord saw the misery of Israel, which was very bitter, for there was neither bond nor free spared, nor was there any helper for Israel. Yet the Lord did not say that He would wipe out the name of Israel from under heaven, but He saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So that's particularly interesting, because even by the hand of an exceedingly evil king of the Hebrew people, the Lord saved His people according to the word of Jonah. So this passage also establishes Jonah as the legitimate prophet before he appears in his own story later in the, in the Bible. Jesus also spoke about Jonah at least twice, appearing in three different places in the Gospels, according to both Luke and Matthew. Matthew twelve thirty-eight says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves a sign, and so no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was in the stomach of the sea monster for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And Matthew sixteen one has basically the same thing, and then Luke eleven twenty nine uh, has a very similar thing, but it's a little bit different. Now, as the crowds were increasing, he began to say, "This generation is a wicked generation; it demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation." The Queen of the South will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them, because she came from the ends of the earth to listen to the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Well, for the last few months, I've been rethinking my views about the ultimate fate of human souls. And I've read... Quite a few books about the concept of universalism now that word has a few possible definitions but in general the idea is that all men will quote be saved which by the way also has a few possible definitions at any rate some consider universalism to mean that all religions will lead to salvation but others are more focused on a universal fulfillment of the specific christian definition of salvation which says that all humans will ultimately accept christ as their savior Well, whichever definition of universalism you might choose to discuss, it's clearly a long way from the traditional evangelical understanding that most humans will reject Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and God will permanently condemn them to hell for their denial of his lordship. That's certainly the viewpoint I grew up with. Because I named Jesus as my own personal savior, I would be one of the blessed ones who went to heaven instead of hell at the end of my life and that I would be one of the sheep and not the goats when Jesus proclaimed my fate on the Great Judgment Day. But what I've been reading and what my sense of the Bible teaches when I start afresh, instead of trying to fit what I read into my existing hell and damnation doctrine, my sense fits a lot closer to universalism than the evangelical understanding of salvation and hell. I sense that what one author calls evangelical universalism is the most in line with the entirety of scripture, in the sense that it still abides by the idea that only those who put their trust and faith specifically in Jesus and make him their Lord will be saved, but that ultimately all mankind will choose to do so. And it goes beyond those currently alive. God will save even those who have died without believing in Jesus' sacrifice. Now, I'm not going to go deeper into the specifics of universalism or spend any time here defending it. There are plenty of good books, and I've listed some of them on my suggested reading list page that you can consider reading. But I don't think defending universalism is necessary to make the points that I'm going to make now. Now, not surprisingly, any universalist doctrine is anathema to evangelicals. It It violates the idea which is very deeply entrenched and taught on a very regular basis that we only have this lifetime to decide to follow Jesus. If you die without professing faith in Jesus, you spend eternity in hell, no questions asked, no chance of reprieve. A reasonable question might be asked of any universalist. If one might be saved after death, then why bother witnessing to the lost while they're still alive? Well, to me the answer is simple, because I still do believe in God's judgment leading to a very painful time of punishment after death. In keeping with God's justice, the punishment will fit the crime. I no longer believe, however, that the punishment is everlasting or without end. Specifically, because it will fit the crime, I don't see how a short lived crime, because after all, human life is a mere blink on the scale of eternity, I don't see how a short-time crime could be answered by a just God with an infinite, unending, eternal punishment. But the point is this, there will be punishment after we die, and I would wish others to avoid that fate by trusting in Jesus. Furthermore, I know from experience and from the Bible that following God and being part of his kingdom during this lifetime has amazing richness and blessings, and that leads me to desire the same for the lost around me. So not believing in unending damnation and believing instead that God will ultimately win over all those, even those who die in their sin, does not in any way lessen my sense of urgency for the lost. It simply releases me from what I now see as a mistaken belief that I can in any way be responsible for them being lost to the kingdom for eternity. By now you're probably wondering where Jonah comes into this whole discussion. I mean, ultimate salvation and some guy being swallowed by a great fish and surviving the experience don't really seem all that related after all. But I see connection, and it has to do with Jonah's attitude about the guilty. God called Jonah to witness to a sinful and damned city. God had already clearly and definitively proclaimed judgment on them. Jonah refused because he felt like the inhabitants of that city deserved their fate, and he knew that God was a, quote, gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in mercy and one who relents of disaster. But God made it clear by how he insisted on Jonah's witness to Nineveh that those humans were just as deserving of his salvation as Jonah's own people, God's own people. And God was determined to save even the enemies of his people and to use one of his own people to call these foreigners to repentance. Notice that despite his very clear statements to Jonah that he was going to destroy Nineveh, God relented. He changed his mind when the people turned from their evil. And this is hardly the only story where God changed his mind. Consider, for example, Moses' appeal in Exodus 32 for the people when after they shied away from entering the promised land, God declared he'd just kill them all and start over with Moses. Or the story of Lot, when Lot appealed to God to save the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah If even a few righteous men could be found and God backed down from his initial plan until it was down to just a few. Similar verses of God relenting of judgment can be found in the prophecies of Jeremiah and in other biblical accounts. So we see a strong picture across the entire Bible of a God who declares judgment on sin but goes out of his way to bring salvation and restoration. And this makes me rethink Jesus' references to Jonah in a new light that the the quote sign of Jonah was not just about his own death for three days being predicted by Jonah's three days in the fish, but also that Jesus' ministry would not only be to God's own people, but it would extend even to those who'd already been judged and found deserving of destruction. I cannot help but notice that Jonah was an example of a foreshadowing or a type, if you will, of, of God's people being the witness that brings the outsiders to salvation just as Jesus would bring God's salvation to the entire world, not just to the Jews. In some sense, I also see echoes in today's evangelical church of Jonah's thinking and of his, call it an insider's mindset. They insist that those who reject Jesus deserve destruction and utter judgment, and they don't want to consider any possibility that God might repent of their annihilation and restore them instead. So it feels to me as if evangelical Christianity considers itself a sort of an insider's club, wanting to keep the membership limited and to continue to exclude anyone who didn't didn't buy in early enough before death. And it's much like Jonah wanting to keep God's salvation only for his own people. But, you know, over and over in the Bible, I read story after story of God determinately expanding the boundaries of his kingdom. And there's scripture after scripture that says, all mankind and all people and all creatures and everything when it's speaking of God's determination to save his entire creation and to make it whole again. It can't be whole with just some of the people being saved. It's not just his people, but all people. God sent his son to his people, but as the New Testament unfolded, it became increasingly clear that every tribe and tongue and nation or people group would be saved too. And if God was serious about saving every tribe and tongue and nation, Well, I have to consider why that would not include peoples that have been born, lived, and died before Jesus and those who have yet to hear about him today and will die before they do. So I feel I must reject the spirit of Jonah, that that human desire to see God execute vengeance on my enemies, on those who do not meet my standards, my understanding of God's standards even, for going to heaven. I don't see any choice but to believe that God may very well be able to save even those who have already been judged and condemned. And like Jonah, my new understanding of God's eternal everlasting grace doesn't diminish God's assignment to me to call others to turn away from their sin and to trust in Jesus' saving work on the cross and to reach any who haven't yet heard the good news. Rather, I see that it's the very way in which God will see them ultimately saved, if not during this lifetime, then somehow In the eternal future ahead of us in fact i imagine that my witness for christ and for god's saving grace won't end on the day that i die it will simply migrate into the new world where we will all continue to model his love for the lost even in the new world because notice that in revelation of john in the final two chapters even when the new heavens and the new earth are in place and when the holy city the new jerusalem has already come down out of heaven from god that there will still be those outside the gates doing evil and not being welcomed. But despite that, on no day will its gates ever be shut. Isn't that interesting? That strongly implies to me that God will still be calling to the lost and welcoming in those who, quote, wash the robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. That's in Revelation 22:14. It's nearly the last thing in the Bible that talks about them continuing to come in. And so I can easily imagine that it's God's own people who will continue to bring witness to his goodness and grace and mercy, even in that new era of eternal life, even after the great judgment day. So if my heart is modeled after my heavenly father's heart, then I know that one day I'll rejoice when my even enemies and those outsiders are ultimately saved because after all, he calls me to love them and not hate them and to rejoice in their redemption, not in their punishment. So I invite you, reject the spirit of Jonah with me and consider anew God's heart for the lost. Be blessed, folks. God loves you so deeply, and he loves even what we think of as his enemies so deeply that he will not stop pursuing them. We'll talk again soon.